We're currently in the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, and Irfan Yusuf has a personal perspective on the month of fasting, given he's a Muslim who can't fast as much as he'd like to. That'll become clear in a moment. Irfan is a former lawyer, an author of Once Were Radicals, My Years as a Teenage Islamo-Fascist. He's here with us to please explain Ramadan. Okay, all you monotheists, polytheists, atheists, and any other cyst I've missed out, here is a reflection on the spiritual side of Ramadan. You don't need to believe everything you read in the Herald Sun or an ISIS press release, even if often they sound so similar, because Islam isn't just about armed jihad and acquiring multiple stroppy mothers-in-law. It does have a spiritual side, believe it or not, and Ramadan is an inherently spiritual month, full of prayer and fasting and more fasting and more prayer and hardly any horizontal bedtime action. That's the month we're in right now. The theory behind all the deprivation is that if you're hungry and thirsty and sex-deprived between sunrise and sunset for an entire lunar month, you gain a spiritual high that will last you for the rest of the year. Now, look, there are plenty of Muslims out there who don't fast for perfectly legitimate reasons. Under Sharia, oh my God, Sharia, what is that? It's a religious law, actually. Believe it or not, it's not some secret recipe to turn the galaxy into the milky caliphate. There are plenty of Muslims who couldn't give a flying falafel about the Sharia and are happy to pass their lives only fasting when the doctor or pathologist tells them to. Of course, there are others who have fasted all their life, people like me. I've fasted since I was 10 years old when mum told me it was compulsory. But then later in life, they succumb to some kind of illness where their doctor tells them that it's not a good idea to fast, which is exactly what my doctor told me. So I miss the spiritual crescendo that comes with the late afternoon's empty stomach. Now, without that high, all the other observances of Ramadan, collective breaking of the fast or iftar, late night prayers or tarawih, feel almost meaningless. I don't feel the same joy I used to after satiating my physical and spiritual hunger by stuffing my face with samosas and chicken korma and biryani and glass after glass of rose-flavoured milk and enough soft drink to sustain burping for the rest of the night. I just don't feel that anymore. Now, of course, we're taught that the prophet used to break his fast with some dates and water. That was 1,400 years ago. The 21st century Aussie mozzie, particularly the middle-class Aussie mozzie, gorges on rendang and shawarma and oily Bosnian pies that are guaranteed to bring life to any cardiac surgeon's bank account. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have actually been to a mosque or seen a Muslim at prayer. Here's a quick guide. We all stand up in a line and we bring our hands behind our ears so that we're throwing all our problems over our shoulders. We then stand and recite some prayers from the Quran and then we bow down with our hands on our knees. Then we stand up again before going down in prostration. And then we sit up and then prostrate again before standing up. Now that, my friends, is a full unit of prayer, also known as a rakat. 
Before you imagine what a superb exercise regime this must be, remember that Muslims are supposed to do this in a relaxed pace and with full concentration on what they're reciting. Relaxed pace? Full concentration? Yeah, we'll see. Try doing 20 rakats of Turkish tarawih prayer late at night in congregation in a bloated state after enjoying a massive grilled Turkish dinner. In fact, the Turks and the Bosnians, descendants of the great Ottoman Empire, which spread its borders at a lightning pace, which is exactly how they like to perform their tarawih prayers. The time ratio of a Turkish rakat or cycle of prayer to, say, a Pakistani one is about one to four. The odds are even worse if you're from a Muslim ethnic group that concentrates even harder. I remember once seeing a poor Indonesian chap, a lovely old chap. He was sporting a Batik shirt and a sarong, and he joined the largely Turkish congregation. By the time he had raised his hands and thrown his problems over his shoulder and rested his hands on his chest... The rest of the congregation were already back up for the second rakat. He shook his head in disgust and just walked out. Now, my buddies, the South Asian imams, like to go a bit slowly, though that usually means staying up till past midnight and ensuring that the rest of us have only a few hours of shut-eye before having to get up for an early pre-dawn breakfast and then go to work. But uh, during the Tarava, you'll be standing up in a prayer hall full of burping blokes and you'll actually be able to tell exactly what they've had for iftar. Oh, it's terrible. Many of them will be standing up with their buttocks sort of squeezed together and you're wondering what's wrong with them and it turns out it's because they're trying to keep their wind in and pray to God that they maintain their wind because if you're behind one of them in prostration and you have to get up for the next cycle of prayer, then you could be in trouble. So that's Ramadan, eh? One thing's for sure, I tell you. As far as organised religions go, Muslims are probably the most disorganised on earth. We can't seem to agree on when Ramadan starts or finishes. Some sight the moon with their naked eye. Some use calendars based on astronomical calculations. Some follow religious authorities from countries with astronomically poor human rights records. With such organisation, you can look forward to an Australian caliphate sometime after 2743. Irfan Yusuf with a digestively comprehensive description of Ramadan. Amna, are you fasting during the holy month? Yes. <laughs> now, how on earth do you play a full-on game of footy with no food or water during daylight hours? Discipline, which comes with sport, but also comes with being a human being. If you're disciplined, I think you've got a recipe for success. But it must be extremely taxing. Do you feel it? For me, it's actually the most rewarding time in my football season, which is insane because... You're working so hard and you've run so much and you need to drink water. But what happens is as a team of Muslim and non-Muslim players, we have to lift and play for each other and really come together. So I'll be like, right, girls, who's fasting? Hands go up. So you might have five girls in the group or whatever it is. And then it's the responsibility of every single one of us to work together. But there's something really peaceful. Like it's because you're all about to faint. Well, no, it's not about that. It comes back to the whole conversation we're having about 
our humanity. And when you're fasting and playing football, if you think that's hard, then what's fasting like for a kid living in Syria or a kid living in Iraq or a kid living in Sudan? Point made. I go home at five o'clock, not like some of the European nations where they're breaking fast at nine. I eat a beautiful home-cooked meal. I have a full fridge and I'm incredibly blessed. And if the worst thing I do in my day, the most taxing thing is playing football, then, you know, in comparison to other people, that's pretty easy. Shane Houston, we've been speaking about uh, intercultural awareness. I think the Queensland Parliament should get an A for effort, but a slightly lower mark for delivery. They had an iftar dinner this week. Just see if you can identify any uh, issues with the menu. Rack of Kalani lamb with sherry reduction. What? Sherry. Oh, my God. (laughs) Crap. Someone made a mistake in the kitchen. Last year it was Jewfish. Oh no! But See, that's a well. I think the I think the alcohol thing—it's it's a common mistake. <laughs> you know, Look, maybe there would have been know. there would have been no alcohol in there because they cooked with it. It's a reduction, so it would have burnt away. Yeah, but then Muslims will have different opinions on that, and some people might just feel uncomfortable. What are you going to do? Bring the chef out and say, "Can you explain to us how the reduction happens? Explain <laughs> to your guests." <laughs> I- I should say there was a second main course which could have, uh, which it <laughs> turns out was much more popular than was expected. Of course. <laughs> but, you know, that speaks to Shane's comments earlier about intercultural awareness and making people skilled and equipped. Like, I don't think everyone should have been losing their minds at the chef. It happens, right? And it can be used as a learning opportunity for everyone involved. And if people take the time to ensure that they develop the understanding you won't have those sorts of problems emerging. Of course. Well, that's a wrap, lady and gentlemen. Thank you <laughs> <laughs> uh, very, very much for, for, for being with us on the God Forbid panel this week. I've learned a great deal and enjoyed myself. Thank you. It's good I fun. honestly felt like we could have talked for hours. Oh, it was easily. an enriching conversation. Thank so, you, James. And Malik, thank you. thank you to you. Welcome. Thank you. And Malik Jandali, a Syrian-American piano virtuoso and composer. His tour dates we'll put on our website. You can Google for his webpage as well. I'm Nakara Hassan, Australian Federal Police non-sworn officer and an outstanding football legend at the Auburn Giants. And Shane Houston, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, University of Sydney, transforming Australia's oldest university from within and without. Look, that's it for God Forbid. If you want to get in touch, email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. You You can download the iPod on iTunes or on the ABC Radio app. Until next week, don't forget, you must be good. God forbid. God forbid.